um, verse 1. When the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw that all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your men must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. Uh, to verse 23. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons and spices, and horses and mules. Uh, jumping to chapter 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Ed Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem which I have chosen. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Ahiah, the prophet of Silo, met him on the way. Wearing a new cloak, uh, waiting on the way, wearing a new cloak, the two of them were not alone, uh, were alone out in the country, and Hagiah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into twelve pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Take ten pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. 
See, I am going to tear the kingdom of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my um, servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worship Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonites, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Amorites, and, I, and have not walked in my ways, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my statues and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. If you do whatever I command you, and walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes, by keeping my statutes and commands, as David, my servant, did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Solomon reigned in Jerusalem for over all Israel 40 years. Then he rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. Reboam went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. When Joabim, son of Nebat, heard this, because he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt. So they sent for Joabim, and he said, and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days, and then come back to me. So the people went away. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam, as the king had said, Come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given to him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy, I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, and I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord, to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Hajar the Shiloite. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? When all the Israelites heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, The kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill kill me and return to king Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel, and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. 
The people went even as far as Dan to worship the one there. Skipping forward 245 years, we go to 2 Kings chapter 17. In the twelfth year of Hazes, the king of Judah, Jehia, son of Elah, came king of Israel and Samaria, and he reigned nine years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hashia, who had been Shalmaneser's Sh- vassal, and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hoshea was a traitor, for he had sent in envoys to So, king of Egypt, and he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore, Shalmaneser seized him and put him in prison. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land and marched against Samaria and laid, sie- laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth ninth year of Hashia, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala, in Gozan, on the Harbour River, and in the towns of the Medes. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods, and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left, and even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices Israel had introduced. Let me pray for us before we look further at this passage together. Heavenly Father, uh, please we pray as we continue to chart this uh, salvation story arc through the Bible uh, and see how you've been outworking your purposes throughout all of biblical history, uh, please may we have our hearts encouraged to trust you more, uh, the sovereign God who sovereignly works out his purposes to you in accordance with your will, your good will. Amen. Have you ever suffered a devastating loss? Have you ever suffered a devastating loss? Well, uh, James Altua has. uh, He tells his story on the website of Forbes, the global media and business investing company. Uh, James established his first company in the 1990s, building websites for entertainment companies. Uh, Business boomed resulting in in him selling his company for $15 million. Uh, With this vast amount of cash, he bought uh, an apartment for several millions and rebuilt it. Uh, He purchased art. He played poker. He invested in other companies, particularly internet stocks. And that's where things started to get rather dicey. In the late 1990s, the value of the internet stocks started to plummet And from June 2000 to September 2001, James lost $1 million per month. A million dollars per month. He had two young daughters. Uh, He lost his house and all his savings. And in his own words, he recounts what it was like to lose everything. And I quote, I felt like I was going to die That zero equals death. 
I never slept. I lost weight. I couldn't talk to anyone. I couldn't move. I stopped having ideas. I cried every day. I looked at my daughters and I thought, I have ruined their lives. Well, uh, James Altua suffered the trauma of devastating loss. He went from riches to rags. He had it all, but he ended up with nothing. And such would also be the experience of the nation of Israel between 1000 BC and 522 BC. Under the reign of David and Solomon, they had it all. But 500 years later, they ended up with zero. So let's first look at the prosperity, Israel's prosperity under the reign of King Solomon. Indeed, the reign of David and Solomon are the high points of Israel's history. It's the period when Israel comes the closest to actually obtaining what God has promised through Abraham. It seems like they had it all. Uh, There were five particular areas of blessing to look at. Uh, Firstly, uh, as a result of David, the military leader, Israel now occupies the full extent of the land promised to Abraham. So that was the first, the land. Secondly, blessings. They had peace and prosperity. As promised, the numerous descendants of Abraham are now enjoying God's blessings in the land. Uh, We see this coming out in various ways. 1 Kings 4 verse 20. Uh, The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Echoes again of the promises to Abraham. And they ate and they drank and they were happy. Who wouldn't be? Uh, 1 Kings 4 verse 25. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel from Dan to Beersheba lived in safety each man under his own vine and fig tree. Uh, The third area of blessing, uh, a great name. Uh, Israel's renown is now recognized internationally. Uh, As promised, Israel has now become a great nation. 1 Kings 10 verse 23. Uh, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth, And the whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Other nations come to pay homage. Uh, The most famous of these, of course, was the Queen of Sheba, who came up from Ethiopia in Africa. Could this also be what God was alluding to when he said to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3, And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Fourth area of blessing, uh, relationship with God. Uh, God is now dwelling with his people in his temple. We're told that upon the completion of the temple, uh, God's glory now inhabits the building. At 1 Kings 8 verse 10, uh, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud fell cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. As promised, God has now established this close, intimate relationship with his people. He's dwelling in their midst. 
And fifthly, the promise to David of a kingly line that would reign forever. Now David's son Solomon is on the throne, and he is the one who builds the house for the Lord. Could this be the full and final fulfillment of all the promises made to Abraham? And yet, from considering the good life under Solomon, we now need to move to the sad era to consider Solomon's sinfulness and the consequences which flowed out of that. You see, whilst David and Solomon were good kings, they would prove to be not good enough kings. Uh, Despite starting well, Solomon doesn't end well. His heart strays from the Lord. Now, if you recall, long before the people entered the land, God had included guidelines for the kingship in the law of Moses. Uh, We read read about some of them a few weeks ago in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And yet, at his peril, Solomon ignores the stipulations in Deuteronomy. Against God's decrees, Solomon amasses great wealth, and he buys military kits from Egypt. Yet Solomon's greatest undoing was women. Deuteronomy 17, verse 17, God had said this, He, the king, must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. And it was to be a stipulation that Solomon would energetically ignore. 1 Kings, chapter 11, verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughters, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittites. They are from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. It's actually beyond me to understand how Solomon even remembered the names of his 700 wives, never mind how he found the energy to maintain conjugal relations with them, but nevertheless, it seems he did. And as a result of Solomon's sin, God decrees the nation will split and that his son will lose the majority of the kingdom. Uh, 1 Kings 11, verse 11 again. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenants and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And so just as God decrees, the split happens in 922 BC under the reign of Solomon's son Rehoboam. Uh, This is the first of the three great disasters 
that will befall the nation Israel over the next 500 years. Uh, the spit actually occurs because of a political blunder. Uh, unlike his father, uh, Rehoboam is not blessed with great wisdom. Uh, Rehoboam doesn't listen to the pleas of the people for relief from the harsh yoke of servitude laid on them by Solomon. And as a result, the people rebel. Uh, ten of the twelve tribes declare independence, and they appoint their own king, Jeroboam. And the ten tribes in the north retain the same name Israel, whilst the two tribes in the south take the name of the majority tribe, Judah. And we have a map of it there. There we have it. Uh, the blue in the north is this new kingdom, uh, the ten tribes of Israel, which is called the kingdom of Israel. And in the south we have that smaller uh, composite of the two kingdoms of Benjamin and Judah, uh, which is called uh, the kingdom of Judah. So the split occurs, and it's a tragedy from which the nation will never recover. Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah will never ever be reunited again. And so now the nation is divided. And so now we're going to chart the history of that northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and see what happens to it. Because it's in this kingdom that the second great disaster unfolds. It actually results in ultimately its destruction. And their history makes compelling reading. Uh, things do not start well. Uh, God had promised the new king of Israel, uh, Jeroboam, that he would bless him if he obeys God. However, Jeroboam has other ideas. Uh, Jeroboam doesn't trust God's promise to maintain his kingdom. He is concerned that if his people have to go down to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, uh, their allegiance will revert back to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. So, in flagrant disregard for God's law, uh, Jeroboam sets up his own religious system. He now nominates alternative places of worship at, at Dan and Bethel. And he also authorizes the worship of foreign gods. And as a result, at the next 200 years, Israel sinks deeper and deeper into the darkness of idolatry and sin. After Jeroboam, 18 other kings follow. And each of them are as corrupt and godless as Jeroboam. And yet God is not hasty in bringing judgments on that northern kingdom. He is patient and forbearing over two centuries. Uh, during that time, God, out of His grace, sends prophets to call them back to Him. Prophets like Elijah, Elisha, Amos, and Hosea. However, tragically, they don't listen to the prophets. The efforts of the prophets are all to no avail. Uh, 2 Kings 17, verse 13. The Lord, the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey. That I, and that I delivered you to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust in the Lord their God. 
And eventually, the point is reached when God's patience runs out. Uh, judgment is enacted. Uh, God uses the superpower of the day, that is Assyria, uh, modern-day Iran, in his, as his instrument of judgment. And this is how events unfolded. Uh, Hoshea was the last king of Israel. Uh, by the time of the reign of Hoshea, uh, Israel was already a vassal state to Assyria, the superpower of the day. However, Hoshea foolishly rebels against his overlord Assyria. As a result, Assyria invades and deports many of the people. Uh, the exile of Israel, the northern kingdom, is the second great tragedy to strike. And again, it is one from which Israel never recovers. The ten northern tribes are dispersed and lost forever. The northern kingdom is never reconstituted as a nation. Uh, this is actually due to the Assyrian policy. Uh, the Assyrian policy at the time was to intermix their conquered peoples. Uh, what they would do is they would scatter them around uh, their other conquered territories. And as the different people groups intermixed, uh, their sense of national identity was weakened, which made them easier to control. It was a very clever policy. And this is what happened to Israel. Uh, the best of Israel's people, uh, her leaders, her soldiers and craftsmen, are deported. They're taken out of the Israel into exile. And that leaves the Israelite lower classes in the land. And the land is then repopulated by people from other conquered nations. And they intermarry with the remaining Israelites and they create a mongrel Jew-Gentile people group. And they were called the Samaritans. And their spiritual beliefs became a corrupt mix of various religions. Uh, 2 Kings 17, verse 33. They worshipped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. The Samaritans, of course, were despised by the Jews of the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, this animosity was still alive and kicking during the time of Jesus, many hundreds of years later. Uh, that is the shock value of Jesus' parable of the good Samaritan. Uh, this Samaritan history also features in Jesus' discussion with the woman of Samaria in John chapter 4. If you remember, she comments on the debate about the rival centers for worship, either in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. There it is, the separate places which were set up uh, initially by Jeroboam to worship. So, uh, let us think about, therefore, the state of the covenants by the time of 2 Kings 17. By the point of uh, the northern kingdom's destruction, it's clear by this point that the, promises, the promised blessings of the covenants with Abraham and with Moses and with David, they've not been fulfilled. Now, they had almost been obtained during the reigns of David and Solomon, but they are now past glories. Uh, they had it all, but they are now well down the road towards zero. By this point, both kingdoms of Israel have lost most of what they had and are, are in the process of losing what remains. 
of the five areas of blessings, uh, all are registering devastating losses. Firstly, uh, what has happened to the peace and prosperity enjoyed during the reigns of David and Solomon? It has given way to 200 years of conflict and loss. The ten tribes in the northern kingdom are now no more, and all is not well in the southern kingdom of Judah either. By the time of 2 Kings 17, Judah is also a vassal of Assyria, and most of her wealth has been taken by Assyria. Secondly, what about the land promised in the covenants with Abraham, Moses, and won by David? The land has now been largely lost. Uh, with the exile of Israel, all that remains of the land is the relatively small bit owned by Judah. And here we have it on the map again. It has now been reduced down just to that small uh, orangey color in the south. Most of the land has gone. Thirdly, uh, what has come of the promise of a great nation? Well, it is now a small rump. It is now a vassal of Assyria. Uh, most of the people, they're either dead or they are in exile. Fourthly, what about the promise of relationship with God, which was central to the covenants and which was symbolically fulfilled in Solomon's great temple? Well, both the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah have systematically rejected God and they have worshipped idols. And by this point, God has fulfilled his threat to leave Israel. And the writing is on the wall for Judah, 2 Kings 17, verse 18. So the Lord is very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left. And even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. Fifthly, what about the promised everlasting Davidic monarchy? Well, there is still at this point a Davidic king in Judah. However, he rules over a small fraction of what David ruled over. And on top of that, he is also subservient to his Assyrian overlords. So in summary, you see by this point, it is now clear that the blessings promised in the covenants with Abraham, with Moses, and with David, they've not really been fulfilled in Israel. Really, uh, the only part of the covenants that have come to pass are the curses of the covenant with Moses for disobedience. And so the covenant through Moses has just about run its course. It is now obvious that it is not the means by which Israel will inherit the promised blessings. The covenants through Moses is not yet totally dead. Indeed, it will only finally end when Jesus nails its demands to the cross. And this is what the New Testament says in Colossians 2, verse 13. He forgave all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us he took it away, nailing it to the cross. So where does that leave us at this point in this biblical historical storyline? Well, a summary of the situation uh, in regards to the covenants I think is helpful. The promises God made to Abraham 
if you remember, they were unconditional. And so God is still committed to fulfilling them by some means. They still stand. We've also now learned that a good king can greatly help in realizing those promises, in bringing the blessings to pass. God has also made, if you recall, to David an unconditional promise of a king who will rule forever. However, this king is going to have to be, of course, even better than David or Solomon. And the question is, where will Israel ever find such a king? And this question will be even more heartfelt when we see what seems like the end of the Davidic kingship next week. This comes with the third and final big disaster in Israel's history, the exile of the kingdom of Judah. So as we close, a couple of implications that we can draw out. Firstly, sin really does result in judgment. We don't usually see uh, an immediate correspondence between sin and judgment. And as a result, uh, there is this human tendency to think that we've actually got away with it. Uh, The idea of God convening a final judgment when perfect justice will be administered seems unlikely to many people. And yet, what do we see in the case of the kingdom of Israel? Uh, Whilst judgment is deferred for Solomon and Israel, it does eventually come. Uh, Likewise, God is being patient with our generation today. He does so to allow people more time to turn back to him. However, his judgment will eventually happen. Uh, 2 Peter 3 verse 9 uh, gives this insight. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The Lord will not be slow in keeping his promise to host and convene a judgment day. It will come like a thief in the night in his time. The second implication which flows out of what we're seeing is this. God is the sovereign Lord of history. On the face of it, the various disasters that befall Israel occur as a result of political blunders. But the biblical writers enable us to peek behind the screen of current events to discern the hand of God at work. And the root cause of these disasters is not in the end political, but spiritual. They are acts of God's judgment. Uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, heeds poor advice, and his harsh treatment of the people leads to their rebellion against him and the split of the kingdom. But these subsequent events were far more than just the outworking of political incompetence. There was a theological reason for them. They were part of God's outworking of his plan. 1 Kings 12 verse 15 gives this insight. So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord, to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken. Fast forward 200 years later, and Hashir, the king of Israel, rebels against Assyria. 
And in so doing, he precipitates the Assyrian invasion and the subsequent deportation of the people. However, here again, this is not just the result of bad judgment. God is active in these events to punish Israel's sin. 2 Kings 17 verse 7. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The point is this. God is sovereign over history. As Ephesians 1 puts it, ultimately God ensures that all events of history and our lives align, and I quote in Ephesians 1 verse 11, according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. One of the big benefits of this overview series is a growing assurance of God's sovereign control over everything. With a sense of amazement, we will continue to see God working out His incredible salvation plan even when it seems like the train is derailed and all is lost. And this assurance will flow into our lives and our hearts. It means that we will be encouraged to trust God more. And this will be especially true during turbulent times, either personally or globally. We will be reminded God is in control. Even in disasters where devastating loss is experienced, God is still working out His good purposes. And it means that we can rest with our lives in the hands of God's good King, His eternal King, King Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, Thank you for that encouragement from your word, that you're working all things out in accordance with your will. Uh, thank you that we see that you ultimately will be faithful, uh, you will be just, you will not be slow in keeping your promise of convening a final judgment day, but in the meantime you are patient with us, giving us more time to repent and to turn back to you and to put our trust in King Jesus, your eternal Davidic King. Amen.